Judges chapter 14. Really excited about this text. I'll invite you, if you're able, to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. We're continuing here in the life of Samson, part two. Chapter 14, the Lord's word reads this way. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. There he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all of your people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines at that time as the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came towards him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion, and honey. He scraped, out, uh, he scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave them some, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, I'll give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you in your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, yet shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what's sweeter than honey, what's stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would have not found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. Whew. It's the word of God for the people of God, and the people of God said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Lord, it's a, uh, it's a treacherous tale, and yet... It is your word, and you say in Romans 15 that the stories of long ago have been written down that we might learn from them today. And so would you give us eyes to see, minds to hear and understand what it is your Holy Spirit would say to us this morning, that we might heed wisdom from your word, that we might do that which we see in this tale Samson would not, but that we'd heed wisdom from the godly among us. We'd heed wisdom from your providence and even from the pain that's the consequence of sin. And that you would delight in conforming us into the image of your son and that we might delight in you. So, Father, as I preach, I must decrease. You must increase. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Okay, well, we finished last week with this 
Amazing story of uh, Samson's parents, who, as far as we could tell, pretty godly folks. Uh, God uh, appeared to Manoah's wife and later to her again at Manoah's request to tell him, you're going to have a son. He's going to be a Nazarite from the womb. Set him aside. I'm going to raise him up to deliver my people. And this is just not the way we expected that story to unfold. They were so excited. And what do we do? How do we raise him? Don't worry. You just set him aside as holy. Leave that to me. And, uh, and they're in that chapter worshiping. And then she gives birth. And the, the boy has uh, the spirit of God stirring in him. And we're just expecting to see this amazing story of God's deliverance through a faithful servant. And if you've never heard the story, I mean, that's, that's got to be where you, what you were thinking. And then we get this, which is just like a raunchy soap opera of sorts. And, uh, and yet this is, um, boy, if we're not careful, if we're not careful, this will be more a reflection of our own lives than we would like to admit. And so there is something um, critical for us to see and learn in this and something uh, to revel in, in terms of God's mercy and God's goodness. So let's go. Chapter 14, 1, Samson goes down to Timnah. Now remember, the Philistines had come up on the coastline on the west off the Mediterranean Sea, the west side of Israel, and uh, just where Palestine is today, uh, down on the Gaza Strip there. And so he sees uh, a woman there, and he tells his mom and dad, hey, and, and by the way, yes, it's just like it looks. It's, it's rude, it's disrespectful, it's like this entitlement. It just stinks. Everything about Samson's tone, his attitude, his, um, his mindset, the whole thing stinks, okay? And he says, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Go get her for me as my wife. You hate that. Uh, you hate to see, and by the way, there's probably a little application for young men to just not be wise in your own eyes. I, I, I know most of our young men will be here in the next service, but if that's how you speak to your parents right there, just see how ugly that is at any age. We're told to honor our father and mother. Uh, it's the first commandment with a promise that will go well with us. We will have long life in the land. The first horizontal commandment God gives us is about how we deal with our parents, how we treat them. This just rubs us wrong, and it ought to. But what rubs us wrong further is the theological component of it. He's saying, go get me a pagan woman as my wife, and he's going to say in a minute, because she looks good. She's pretty. So the standard of uh, what he's looking for in a woman is, A, just whatever he wants, B, whoever looks good, C, total disregard for the wisdom of God, and even his parents right here in verse 3, father and mother said to him, is, I mean, by the way, think how distressed they were. We're having this son to be consecrated to God, to be raised up to save God's people, to deliver them for the Philistines, and the first thing he wants to do is marry one of them? And, he's, and they said, is there not a woman from among the daughters of your relatives? Is there not a woman from among all of our people? They were saying, is there not a woman out there who uh, fears and reveres and loves Yahweh? That's the idea. That you got to go take a wife from the uncircumcised. Uh, sorry, uncircumcised. It wasn't about race or nationality. It was about idolatry. You got to take a woman from a people who serve false gods. Um. Let me, let, me just, let me just comment on that. That's not just an Old Testament thing. We do see it in Exodus 34, reiterated in Deuteronomy 7, reiterated again in Deuteronomy 23, reiterated again in Joshua. God's consistent with his message to his people. Do not marry someone who doesn't know and love God. That's the idea. In the New Testament, we, we, get, a, we get a hammer down on that in 2 Corinthians 6 when Paul says, don't be unequally yoked. 
don't get in a binding relationship with a non-believer. Now, that actually has a broader application than just marriage, but we know it at least includes marriage. Is there any more binding relationship uh, in mankind on this earth other than marriage? So we know 2 Corinthians 6 has an application for the believer that we're not to be yoked. The, the, the greatest sense in which we could be humanly yoked with someone would be the marriage covenant, where indeed we are participating in God's design for two people to become one. So there's an Old and New Testament standard given us that we're not to marry an unbeliever. And just to make a comment on that, because it's, you know, it's something that's largely ignored and, well, it's, it's uh, mocked in, in culture today, but it's largely ignored among young Christians, even in the church. And uh, in fact, that's one of the first things I'm sensitive to. If Catherine and I sit down to do marriage, premarital counseling, one of the first things we're trying to discern is, do both of them love Jesus? Or are they both lost? In either case, marriage can be a really redemptive and, and, uh, and good and godly ordained thing. But if it's one believer and one non-believer, according to scripture, that's not good. It's not pleasing. Here's, here's just why generally uh, said that I think this is the wisdom of God given to us. We're talking about marriage. We're talking about a man leaving his father and mother, being united to his wife, the two becoming one flesh. Your, your heart and mind and will and lives are supposed to be tethered together. You're literally going from, I'm on a journey of pursuing Christ in my life, to we are on a journey. And if you got one person whose sole purpose in life is to live as Christ, to die as gain, I'm, I want to spend my life seeking after the heart of God, honoring him, worshiping him, sharing him. And you got another who goes, I'm not interested in that. Then all of a sudden, the best you can do is go, well, we respect each other. I'm going to pursue God, and they're going to pursue other things. There's other things more important to them than God, which means those are idols. They're going to pursue idolatry. So you got, I'm going this way, they're going that way. That's not this. Do you understand? The, the, the marital relationship is, is meant to be one where it's not I'm doing this and she's doing this, or I'm doing this and he's doing this. It's we're going this way together. And God says, don't, don't become one with someone who in the most sacred understanding of what life is all about has a different idea, is going a different direction. Because every time you're pulling near to me, you'll be pulling apart from them. I'm not uh, calling you to marry someone you could grow disconnected with over the course of your life. And so every time you numb your affections from me to stay connected to them, you're pulling away from me. Nothing could be more tragic in your life. So God says, be warned, don't do that, it won't work. Now, a quick word on the back end, 1 Corinthians 7 does say, if you are married to an unbelieving wife, and he says, if you are married to an unbelieving husband, don't divorce them. Don't go, well, I screwed that up, I'm getting divorced. No, he says, you love me faithfully, love me wholeheartedly, is the context of 1 Corinthians 7, and love your spouse faithfully. And let God bring a, a, the mercy of sanctification into that home and among those children because of your devout love for me. Okay? So, just a quick aside because it's important and it's relevant. But Samson, understand this, he is just cruising right through the wisdom of God. It doesn't even phase him. It's like there's, you know, woman in um, Timna's really pretty. It's like a road, you know, a sign that says road closed ahead. He just knocks that out of the way, does not care. He's going to head right to the edge of this cliff and, and dive off of it head first. But the first warning shot goes up, off. It's the, the precept of the word of God. He ignores it. 
Um, there was a second one right there. Did you see it? Uh, working with peas today. I don't normally do this. All right. So I hope that it blesses you. But it wasn't just the precepts, precept of the word of God. It was the wisdom of his parents. How do he do with that? Hey, son, we love you. What about all these women who love God, who share at the core fundamental level a, a, a belief with you of who God is and who he's called us to be as his people? How about any one of them? He doesn't even respond. He just ignores that. He brushes that aside. Go get me, go get me this girl. She's, she's really good looking. She's the one I want. So first thing he's brushed aside is the, the word of God and the precept of God's word. The second thing is the wisdom of God that came through his parents. You may or may not have godly parents, but maybe there's godly wisdom in your life through men or women, maybe even in this church, mentors who are godly. That you brush aside the word of God, you brush aside the wisdom of your mentors, the precepts and the parents, and look why it says it. This is a whole commentary on our culture right here at the end of verse three. She's right in my eyes. The reason he'll ignore God's word is because he's got a better idea. The reason he'll ignore the wisdom of his godly parents is because there's cravings of his flesh that are calling out to him, and he's willing to listen to them and not the wisdom of those who love them that have been there before him that are wiser than he is. Uh, that, you're going to see it three times in this text. You probably noticed when I was reading it. She's right in my eyes. That's going to dictate Samson's actions again and again and again. He's going to be a man, a fleshly man, who does what's right in his own eyes. If you remember Israel in this day, they did what was right in their own eyes. He's a picture of all of Israel that way. And I would say he's a picture of our culture. Second Tim 4 says, be careful. There's a day when men are just going to gather around them voice to tell them what their itching ears want to do. They're not going to um, submit themselves to the absolute truth of God's word and uh, surrender their lives or submit their lives to the yoke of its rule. They're going to say, you know what? That might be your truth. I've got my truth. As a matter of fact, one of the big cultural messages of today, commercials of today to our young people and old alike is, hey, just find your own truth and live it. Whatever's true for you may not be true for somebody else, so don't judge them. Find your truth. Listen, I'm going to state the real obvious, but, you know, it's worth stating. That's not truth. That's just your subjective viewpoint. If it's not absolute true, if it's not absolutely true, if it's not a standard that comes from a God who is absolutely true, is revealed in his word, your truth or my truth, if they differ from another, cannot both be true. It's just subjective. And what you'll find in life is you'll change your truth to fit your fleshly desires as the years or decades. What was true for me in my 20s, not true anymore in my 40s. This is, a, this is the way we're trying to live in the foolishness of man. In Romans 1, we'll suppress the truth. We'll come up with our own truth. We'll change it according to our desire. And we'll use it either as a platform for self-righteousness or rebellion. Now, how does that work? Well, I either use it, I, I, I make a truth that I can wrap my life around. I'll, I'll make truth the way I live. And I'll judge other people's um, not uh, succumbing to the truth that I've said, I'll look down on them in judgment to make myself feel better about the way I live. So that's a self-righteous judgment I'll make based on my subjective truth. Or I will, and this is more often the case, or I will just compromise what God's word says, make my truth something lesser or different than to justify the sin that I want to imbibe in. That's probably even more common. But either way, if we're the ones uh, making up truth, we'll do it to feel good about ourselves to be self-righteous in our own eyes or to justify what we know is sin. 
uh, it was true for Israel. It's true for today. It's true today. That's the culture we live in. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Just know from Samson's life, if that's the way you're living, it's always going to lead to a drift from God. You're always going to have less and less of God, his blessing in your life or culture, less and less of the experience of his presence, less and less of the life and peace that comes from life by the Spirit. You're going to drift further and further away as we will see in his life. I mentioned he's a fleshly man. First First John 2 says that everything of the world is found in the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. It says those are the things that are not from God. The world will tempt you through your eyes, what you covet, what you lust after, those things your flesh longs for, and your pride. Uh, I talked to the students about this this weekend. We talked about Romans 12, verse 2 as the theme of our camp, that we don't be conformed to the world, that we be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So don't give in to the cravings of your eyes, your flesh, and your pride. Don't conform there. Romans 8 says, should you conform to the cravings of your eyes, your flesh, or your pride, that will lead you to death. Romans 8, 6 and following. It says, should you rather renew your mind in truth, the truth will set you free from those cravings. God will literally bend your will to his should you be renewing your mind in truth and it'll transform you at a heart level, at a mind level, to where your will becomes his will. And the result of that will be life. This is a life or death issue. Are you gonna be one who follows the cravings of your eyes and your flesh and your pride? Or are you gonna realize, boy, that's where Satan comes in. I've gotta subdue those things by the power of the spirit, surrender them to the standard of God's truth because God's truth leads me to life. God's truth frees me from my sin and myself. In God's word, there's healing, there's life, there's peace, there's joy, there's hope, there's fruit. Apart from it, there's death. Well, you're going to experience life or death. And it's going to be in terms of how you answer those cravings of your eyes, your flesh, and your pride. Samson's modeling a man who's he's got no, no governor. It's like, Dad, that's great what God's word says. I appreciate what you say, but I just don't care. I want her. I want her. Okay? Uh, I've heard about a plant in South America that, uh, that's one of those fly-eating plants. And the fly gets in there, and the bulb of that plant is, is sky blue. And it attracts it, and once it gets in there, the fly gets disoriented. Can't tell if he's on the flower or in the sky because both look exactly the same. And so the flies, without knowing up from down, he has to be led by his senses. And there's a real sweet smelling aroma that comes from this corkscrew stem of this fly. And so the fly, left to his senses, just keeps descending down the bulb of this fly uh, of this plant towards that corkscrew stem because of the sweetness of the smell. And the problem is there's these little spikes and they point down, and as the fly descends down, it's like turnstiles, it clicks each spike, and at any point the fly realizes, wait a minute, I might be going the wrong direction. The further down that fly gets, the harder it is to get out. Until it's so far down, spikes completely wielding its end, that it just gives itself to the sweetness of the smell, which is the digestive juices of that plant. And that fly is dead. Can I tell you what? Be real careful 
You start bouncing around with your truth, my truth, and disorienting yourself from the standard of real truth. You start passing the turnstiles of God's word and getting further and further, following the sweetness of the cravings of your own flesh. Before you know it, you won't just be ensnared and entangled in sin and the enemy's schemes. You'll be dead. Okay? We're watching it right here. All right, verse 4. His father and mother did not know it was from the Lord. For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. uh, For at that time the Philistines ruled over Israel. This is an interesting verse. I spent about 10 days wrestling with this verse, but I'm just going to give it to you in about 40 seconds. Uh, it, I can't just completely um, theologically divide this for you, but I'll tell you this. God ordains um, Samson's sinful, wicked following of the flesh. God's going to use that to deliver his people. And I say ordains it because God knew of it. It wasn't shocking to God. God ordained it. Uh, uh, John Piper says when God ordain- God's sovereignty means he's ordaining those things that happen, meaning he, he sometimes causes and he sometimes permits. I can't quite get to the plumb the depths of did God cause or permit. Even if he causes, though, it's no excuse for us to sin. It just uh, gives us a, a greater appreciation for God's providence, that he'll hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. Uh, the ultimate example of this is not Samson. A great example, by the way, is Joseph. That's not the ultimate example either. But in Joseph's life, his brother sold him into slavery. Not only did Joseph say at the end of his life in chapter 49 of Genesis, what you meant for evil, God used it for good. So there's that sense when God can take what's evil and and redeem it. But he also says in chapter 45, um, God gave me over to the Egyptians so that he could preserve his people. Joseph said, God did this. You're like, wait a minute, but it was your brothers and their jealousy. Well, God, God superseded that. He, was, he oversaw that. He ordained it in some theological tension of cause and permitted. God did it by Joseph's own testimony. But even that's not the ultimate. You guys know what the ultimate is, right? Peter, Acts chapter 2. Uh, Jesus was turned over by the evil of lawless men. Was that, a, was that at the surprise of God the Father? Was he going, what just happened? No. It says also in the same verse, by the foreknowledge of God. God had ordained that. God sent Jesus to die. Those men were doing what was evil. They're accountable for the evil which they did. But God ordains it for redemptive purposes. That's the ultimate. Well, God's going to do the same thing in Samson's life. He's going to take what Samson means for evil, and he's going to use it for good. So Samson goes down with his father and mother to Timnah. They came, this is just sad. It's sad that the godly father and mother are being uh, jerked down to Timnah to give their blessing on this wedding. It's, it's, and by the way, I've got teenagers. Uh, you know, they're not little kids anymore. You don't just control, you, you can't just tell them what to do and what not to do. At some point, you've got to trade in uh, that uh, authority for influence. And that's the whole goal. That's the whole transition of parenting. But you're not going to parent them forever. At some point, you're like, all right, I pray that the, uh, that the wisdom we've tried to impart to you, the truth we've tried to give you, the life we've lived, though extremely imperfectly before you, I pray that it is prepared and equipped and given you a vision for life that submits to God's word, but you're going to have to go live it. And at that point, when that child's become a young man and says, well, I'm going to do this, you go, man, be careful with that. Be care- man, be careful. I love you. Be careful. Dad, I'm doing it. Now you got that decision to make. 
I don't want to endorse this, but I don't want to not have a relationship with my son. This is a sticky spot. It's a spot where probably many of you are in right now. I get it. Uh, I'm just pointing out that you're not alone. And dad, mom, they're not thrilled about this. They've already said, son, don't do this. But here they are. Uh, they got to go down. But behold, God's going to be merciful. A young lion comes roaring towards him. The Spirit of the Lord comes on him, and he tears it apart. Hey, you know what happened here? In his Nazarite vow, you guys remember, he's not allowed to touch anything dead. He just tears this line apart with the Spirit of the Lord. Again, Samson's strength is his weakness. His weakness is his strength. But when that happens, he's now touched death. He has to, by virtue of the Nazarite vow he's taken, go back to Shiloh, consecrate himself, shave his head, start all over again. This should cancel the wedding. God mercifully acts, here's your next P, in providence. He sends a lion to keep Samson from even greater sin and consequence of his sin. Can I tell you, I think God does that in our lives. God is, he, he chastens us in our uh, disobedience, but he loves us enough. He's given us his word. If you're like me, there's a lot of times I'm ignorant of his word or I ignore his word. And there's the wisdom of godly men and women around us if we're wise enough to surround ourselves. Sometimes the flesh is strong and I ignore the wisdom. And then there's the providence of God. God sends a lion in his path. I think God sends lions in our path. Sometimes we call them closed doors. <laughs> sends a lion that we might, that he might stop us in our tracks from doing that very thing which will separate us further from him. And yet, what does Samson do? He says he didn't tell his father and mother about what he had done. He's going to keep this little, little uh, sidebar ripping this lion to shreds with his barons. He's going to keep that a secret. Can I tell you, this is, this is I'd underline that verse. This is, this is one of the... Um, one of the real problems with Samson's life, it's not merely that he um, follows the impulses of his flesh as his primary truth guide, but it's, he likes to hide it. He's going to have a public persona as a Nazarite deliverer, but he's going to have a private life of sin. And in that private life of sin, it's going to start small and get bigger. And the way it gets bigger is because he keeps hiding it. He's never going to tell anybody. We're going to see again and again in this text, he's going to not tell his parents. He's going to lie to his parents. That sin is going to grow uh, from a bad decision to feasting on sin, to making a mockery of sin, uh, to causing all kinds of problems in his life and his people's life because of sin. And it's because right here, he's not a man who confesses what he's done. I was uh, reading this week in J.C. Ryle's Thoughts for Young Men with the young men that are in my discipleship group. And one of the points he made this week a great little discipleship resource, J.C. Ryle's Thoughts for Young Men. He said, be careful that there's not any allowed sin in your life. He said, constantly ask the Spirit, bubble up, reveal to me, is there any sin that seems small that I've just allowed it? I've made peace with that small sin because it's just small. He said, be careful, you make peace with any sin in your life, ultimately that sin's going to enslave you. The mark of a true Christian is not that you don't have any sin in your life. First John corrects our thinking on that. You and I are still going to stumble all the way until we reach glory and no longer have to deal with the old man of the flesh. We're going to sin. But the mark of a Christian, not that he doesn't sin, but that when the Spirit reveals sin, he confesses it. He repents of it. He, the Lord washes him with the grace of forgiveness and he returns to Jesus who is better and he continues the journey. That's the mark of the Christian. He won't allow little sin. 
in his life. You know, if I were to say very practically what Samson's, I don't know, he's got a lot of problems. I was going to say his biggest problem. One of his biggest problems. There's just no dudes in his life. You never see them. It's the, the, all the, if you were to put together a play on Samson, you're going to have him and a bunch of women as your lead, lead, actors, lead actresses. Because all the main characters are the women he wants to sleep with. There's no men. He's going to hide his sin. He doesn't want any accountability. He doesn't want to be known. He doesn't want to be vulnerable. Because there would be, that would have to lead him to repentance. He's frustrated by the idea of repentance. He wants to revel in his sin. This is man given over to his flesh. Uh, well, let's see how this works out. Then he goes down, he talks to the woman. Again, she's right in his eyes. That's the one commandeering thing. That, that's the ace of spades for Samson. No matter what anybody else says or anything else says, she, she looks good. He returns to take her, and uh, on the way to do so, he sees that carcass of the lion that he ripped up. Behold, there's a swarm of bees in the body of the lion. So just like you and I would do if we saw a carcass with a bee have inside, we'd go over there and scrape it out and eat it. We, fall, we can all relate. But he does that. He goes and scrapes it out into his hands. And now, now, now catch this. He went on eating as he went. There's something just so, this is just a shake a fist at God. That was a place of sin in his life. And he's going to eat from the sweetness of his sin as a lifestyle. He's going to make a mockery of his sin. There's no remorse. There's no repentance. He'll go over and eat out of the fruit of that dead, rotting carcass, that which he created. He's going to revel in his sin. He'll go to mom and dad and give them some of it. But notice this. He's not going to tell them that he had scraped it from the carcass of a lion. He's not going to tell them this came from sin. Uh, we're seeing this progression in his life of walking through the uh, precepts of God's word, walking through the wisdom of the parents, walking through the providence of a lion sent to stop him. We're going to see him ignoring the warning shots that God sends up. And we're going to see what starts as disobedience to God's word become a pattern. It becomes a pattern of I follow my flesh, I don't tell anybody. Maybe he felt bad about it that first time, but the more he does it, he's growing numb to the effects where he's making a lifestyle of sin and hiding, and sin and eating and sin and hiding, and making light of sin and hiding. This is the lifestyle of Samson. If we're not careful, it's a horrible tale. If we're not careful, it'll be your testimony and it'll be mine. You go, how do you get that far away? One step at a time. Y'all hear me? Generally, when there's a, a, somebody that has a, a, a it, it comes out that they've been living this horrible double life, it's a, it's a massive explosion, their rent publicly shamed, whatever. It, it usually wasn't that a guy was wholeheartedly Christ and all of a sudden big epic life change. It was, there was one small compromise. And he didn't tell anybody. And then at some point he made peace with it. And that compromise led to another and each time the sin led to another sin, it got easier and easier and more comfortable sinning until he was eating as he went, until he had a public persona and a private life, and they didn't match. He was a hypocrite. He just wasn't found out yet. One of my greatest mentors, Tommy Nelson, he always told us, I was 24 years old going through his program. 
that if he didn't say this every day, he said it almost every day, uh, fellas, your sin's always going to find you out. He said, it'll, it'll be the mercy of God, by the way. You, you won't like it, but it'll find you out. I've shared this before, but at the ranch, we had the, uh, we're outside the laundry room, which was in the carport. We'd go outside, there was the garden bench, there was a little old uh, uh, a watering uh, pot. And uh, one day, uh, Pop and I came back from the chicken houses. It was still early morning. We were about to eat breakfast. And uh, the sun had just come up, and, and, uh, and Pop was about to turn on the, that spigot. And under it was that pail that we used to water plants. And just as he was about to turn on the spigot, he said, son, I want you to see this. And I came over, and he said, what do you see in there? And I looked in the, in the pail, and from overnight, there had been some spiders that had weaved some webs. And I said, I see spiders. He said, look closely. What kind of spiders? I said, I don't know. He said, well, what do you see? What do you see? I said, I see red markings on their, their belly. Kind of looks like an hourglass. He said, I want you to know. He said, that's a very poisonous spider. It's called a, a black widow. He said, if that spider stings you, you'll be dead before I can get you to the hospital. And I was like, oh my gosh. So my natural thought is, what are we going to do? And uh, immediately, Pop reaches into the pail and just goes like this. And then takes out a bloody hand, turns on the spigot, and just washes it and goes inside. I'm just standing there. So I dumbfounded. I go, Pop, what did you just do? I said, didn't you just say if they sting, you'll be dead before you get to the hospital? He goes, yeah. He said, that's why you squash them before they sting you. Can I tell you something? You be careful with sin, with that little allowed sin. You'd better squash it before it stings you. Amen? Okay, well, watch this. Samson's not going to do it. His father goes down to the woman, uh, prepares a feast. Should dad have done this? I don't know. That's a tough one. I'd pray for Manoah. All right? And uh, as soon as the people saw him, they bring 30 companions. Samson says, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is, within seven days, I'm going to give you all these linens. He's, he's just a fleshly dude. He likes... He likes women, he likes uh, the fine clothes, he likes the gambling, he just, he's all, this is exciting. And they said, all right, give us your riddle. And here's the riddle, out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. Samson, in all of the issues of his life, he's one of the greatest typologies of Jesus in the Old Testament, You're going, how in the world could that be true? Well, here's how it's true. Let me, let me ask you the riddle, how out of the one who kills, can you get something that nourishes? How out of the strong that destroys do you get something sweet? How, how do you get life out of death? That's really the great riddle here. It's the great riddle of the gospel. And the answer, by the way, you know what the answer is going to be? You got to come to the dead lion of Judah who was raised on the third day if you want to get what's truly sweet. Well, three days, couldn't solve the riddle. Fourth day, they go to his wife. They say, tell your, you got to entice him to tell us. By the way, this is pretty harsh. Lest we burn you and your father with fire. Uh, well, that's, that's, if, that's what you're going to get if you're, if you're uh, marrying the Philistines. Okay? This is Philistine culture. It's a deeply pagan culture. It's a culture of, of, uh, of all kinds of wickedness and idolatry and things that, that are horrifying. That's why God says, don't, you can't be one with them. Well, Samson's wife's going to basically harangue him over and over. 
saying all this stuff, you hate me, you gotta tell me, you can't do this to my people, she's weeping. Finally, he gives it and he tells her. And you know what she does? Of course, she betrays him. She tells the answer to the real to her people. And they say, what's sweeter than honey? What's stronger than a lion? And he says, if you hadn't plowed with my heifer, I'm not even gonna preach on that. (laughs) You wouldn't have found out my riddle. Can I say this? Samson doesn't, he doesn't like it when you apply his standard of morality to him. Y'all see that? Real double standard here. I can lie, betray, manipulate, uh, live in rebellion, take advantage of you, no problem. Uh, God's word at that point is merely an inconvenience to me, so I, I, I step around it. But when you're going to betray me, take my standard of morality and apply it to me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna call you the standard of God's word. That's not right. You can't do that. What do you mean you can't do that? By whose standard, Samson? By whose standard is it wrong what they're doing to you? Certainly not by the one you've come up with. No, he wants to appeal to God's word when it's convenient, but not when it's inconvenient because of his own life. Be careful. Spirit of the Lord rushes on him. He goes down to Ashkelon. He strikes down 30 men. He took their spoil gave the garments to them, and and look at this phrase, in hot anger. He is just fuming. My boy's like a dude perfect. He's a a picture of Tyler when he goes into the the, the rage monster. Is that what it's called? Rage monster. Can't quite remember what it's called. Next service, they'll know. All right. But when he rages, when Samson rages, this is what it looks like. He's simmering in his own anger because he's been treated the way he treats others, and he doesn't like that. It's not because of a zeal for God and the uh, the um, desire to be the deliverer God's called him to be, it's because of rage. It's because you've offended his pride. And so now he's going to kill. All right. If you had a chance to talk to Samson right here, by the way, that last guy's introduced one more P into his life. The precepts of his word, Samson gets, gets out of there. The parents, godly parents that God's given you, swats those to the side. The providence of a, of a roaring lion that should remind you of your vow and take you home right through it. And now pain. At the end of the day, your sin's going to bring pain into your life. And that is the mercy of God. Before he gives you over to yourself, there's consequence to your sin. That you might go, when there's hurt in your life, that you might say, is this self-inflicted? Is this just, is, did somebody else do this? Is this just because of the fall of man and the, and the broken world we live in? Or is this sin in my life that God's trying to prune out? Ask the question. Don't run right through pain until it gets worse. If you were counseling Samson, you'd probably say something like this. <clears throat> Samson, you might want to heed the warning shots God's sending up, my man. You ignored his word. You ignored your parents. You ignored his mercy and providence. You're ignoring pain. You might say, hey, Samson, this isn't going to get better if you continue in your, in your stubbornness. If you continue in your rebellion, here's where this is going. Samson, it's leading to death. And Samson's going to go, get out of my way. You don't know what you're talking about. He's raging with anger. You know why, you know why chapter 15 is going to look a lot like chapter 14? Because he has not yet, he hadn't yet hit rock bottom. If Samson, don't you think if he could see the end, if you could say, hey, Samson, God, can I just tell you where this is going to land? You're going to have your eyes gouged out. 
God's going to deal with that lust of the eyes. You're going to be chained to a mill and, and be a, enslaved to the Philistines as one who grinds their wheat. God's going to deal with your pride. Don't you think if he could see where this is going, he might say, or you might be able to say to him, man, it'd be a lot better if you just believe God's word. It might be a lot better if you quit making up your own truth and trust in your eyes, your flesh, and your pride and say, those things will deceive me and lead me to death. God's word is delight. It's life. It's peace. It's not too late for Samson. God's been merciful. It's not too late for you. But understand this, confession and repentance, or it's going like that fly down that corkscrew until he owns you. That's where it's going. Um, I'm going to close just saying, if I could give you a little litmus test to, to see in your own life how you're doing, I would say check three places. Check your marriage. Why do I say check your marriage? Because you can pretty much convince me of anything you want. I don't know you. You can put on a facade and I'll buy it. I don't, I don't know who you are. I only know who you want me to think that you are. But your wife knows who you are. Your husband knows who you are. Check your marriage to find out if you are, uh, if there's allowed sins in your life, if you've got a public persona and a private life that don't match. Check with your marriage. Check the very fruit of your marriage. How's your marriage doing? Check, uh, check your prayer life. If you just thought, <clears throat> what prayer life? That's a warning sign. Check your prayer life where you're still with the Lord and you're inviting him to speak to you. And there's a sweetness and an intimacy. Does it exist? Does God speak? Are you able to hear him? Check your prayer life. And thirdly, uh, I didn't know how, how to better say this. Um, but check your holiness. Got to be a better way to say that. Check, check in your Are you distinctly set apart? You may not be a Nazarite by birth, but you're called as the priest to the believers to be set apart from this world. Are you one led by your eyes, your flesh, and your pride, or are you one led by God's word? Just, just do an inventory check on your holiness. Are you distinctly consecrated? Is your life consecrated unto God? Or does it look pretty much like everybody's around you? I think I said three, but let me give you one more. Check to your right and to your left. And check to see, for you fellas, are there any men standing with you? Ladies, are there any women standing with you? Does there anyone who knows the answers to the first three places I check without you even having to tell them? Because you're, you're an open book. You're vulnerable, you're known, you're accountable so that you don't live a life that leads to death. If there's nobody on your right and nobody on your left, be careful, Samson. Be careful. I can tell you where this is heading. I'm closing reading, just reading God's word to you out of Romans 6. Listen to these words. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves to the one whom you obey? Either sin, which leads to death, 
or obedience which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You weren't righteous. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and in its end, eternal life. Praise be to God. Father, I pray that you would awaken us to the little sin, to the allowed sin, to our disregard of your law, to our disregard of godly wisdom, to our disregard of your mercy, and to our disregard of pain. Let us not grow callous to your mercy. Let us be sweetly surrendered to the delight of your word, that life and peace might be ours in Christ. That's our privilege. God, if there's any man here today, man or woman, that knows right now by the conviction of your spirit, they know there's a little Samson going on. There's a little bit of sin. There's a intention to hide it. No reason to talk about it. We'll just deal with it on our own. There's a slow callousing. There's a justifying. Lord, there's a path leading unto death before their feet. God, arrest their soul right now. Let them see the end. Let them lift their eyes and see where this is going. And today, let them confess their sin and return to their good master of grace. May they delight in you and not the flesh. The flesh leads to death. Your spirit leads to life. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.